0: I'm Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and welcome to our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. I'm joined today by a longtime CBF staff member, Michael Heller, who runs the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's Claggett Farm. Welcome, Michael. It's delightful to be here. Tell us what the Claggett Farm is.
1: Well, um, it's not an easy thing to, to capture in just a few words. Use a um, few more. <laughs> I will use several then. Um, we've got 285 acres that was given to us by the Claggett family back in 1981. and um, Where is it? It's in Upper Marlboro. Maryland. Uh, Maryland, so uh, southern Maryland. And um, historically, it was always corn and tobacco. Um, So when we got the farm, the first thing I did uh, was get the Soil Conservation Service to come out. It used to be the Soil Conservation Service. Today, it's uh, the Natural Resources Conservation Service. I wish it were still the (laughs) Soil Conservation Service. Um, I'm a big fan of soil, and that'll come out, I suspect. Um, What they told me was, you do not have any topsoil on this farm. It's gone. He said, it's as if it's been mined. It's all down in the Chesapeake Bay. So we had our work cut out from day one when we got this farm.
0: All right, now I'm going to interrupt you. Go I, ahead. Want, I want to take this one step at a time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, people walk around and just give not-for-profit organizations like us farms. <clears throat> give us a little bit more background as to how the Claggett Farm came to CBF.
1: Well, I believe we had a delightful fellow, Hal Claggett, who was on the board with the foundation, uh, along with a wonderful fellow, Truman Siemens, who... Um, my, I, my mentor. Your mentor, and you couldn't have a better mentor than, than Truman. Um, and the Claggett family um, was trying to decide what to do with their property. The, the uh, uh, gosh, which one of the Claggetts? Charles Clagget. Charles Claggett. His will said it had to be kept a farm and had to be used as, uh, for education. And the family thought, well, what are we going to do? And they thought about, you know, maybe a boys' school. And they realized that was a losing proposition. So Hal and uh, Truman got together, and I think they came to you, Will, and said, what do you think? And uh, in a moment of insanity, you said it sounded like a good idea. <laughs>
0: A Uh, moment of pure brilliance. Of pure brilliance. We never would have gotten Michael Heller if we hadn't taken it. It
1: is pure brilliance. And I think there's no question the farm has made CBF one of the most uh, forward-looking environmental groups when it comes to agriculture.
0: Well, it was a a stretch for us. This was back, as you say, in the early 80s. We took it and we realized that not only could we try to do better agronomic practices, and I'm going to ask you more about that, but also we could use it in our environmental education program to expose students to how the produce and the meat and the eggs they buy don't come from some factory they come from the land and from working farms and they have a role to play in the health and well-being of the rivers and streams and the bay itself so it's been a it's been a real asset and uh, something that you've done a great job as the first and only director of the farm it's been a few years yeah <laughs> a little over 30 <laughs> Where were you before? Just one more historical question. Where where, where were you before Chesapeake Bay Foundation?
1: I was at the University of Maryland in College Park. I was teaching plant ecology and uh, working on a doctorate, and that's when you called and said, "Would you like a farm?" And I thought, "Geez, heck yes, I'd (laughs) love a farm." So, and and I remember you said, "Really, no strings attached. We want you to." to take this farm and do what you think makes sense. And if we don't like it, we'll get rid of you. It's been a great way to work, really. Um, You you
0: built it from the ground up and um, developed it. I mean, let's, let's, let's jump ahead just for a second because I think it'll give the listeners a sense of just how broad the operation is there. We have used it for environmental education. We have put the best possible realistic agronomic practices on it. But tell us a little bit about your relationship with the DC Community Food Bank.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful relationship. And um, um, I think it's one of the longest collaborations CBF has probably had. We have been working with the food bank now for about 27 years. Um, and we donate 40% of the vegetables that we grow on the farm to the communities that the food bank works with. So these are underserved communities that are don't have access to good fresh produce. And that's why we made that connection many years ago. I remember Lynn Brantley who was the director said, you know, we get lots of wonderful donations, but it's sugar frosted, you know, Cheerios and and canned spaghettios and a lot of these, you know, especially grandparents remember wonderful greens. And um, that's when we decided, well, let's collaborate. And so the way it can work is the Food Bank has helped us get a lot of volunteer help because we couldn't afford to just give away 40% of the vegetables um, that we raise. But we get a lot of volunteer uh, groups that come out. And for us, it's so much more than just volunteering. It really is education. Every group that comes out there understands the connection of, of food to the bay and how the the foundation takes farming very seriously we're not pointing fingers at farmers we're looking at farms as as how can these farmers help us solve the bay problems and i think the volunteers that come out
0: Really appreciate that approach, which broadens the, if I can use the term, constituency, broadens the understanding of the public. Are are these uh, volunteers clients of the food bank, uh, volunteers that want to help the food bank, or a little of both?
1: It would be a mixture of both. Yeah. Um, we do uh, one of the things we do with our vegetable operation is we have work shares. So if you can't afford to buy vegetables, you can come out and work for a day. Mm-hmm. And you will go home with vegetables that day. And there are about 15, 12 to 15 families that will come out every Saturday to harvest vegetables because they really can't afford to go buy them.
0: Okay, so right now I can hear listeners going, well, tell me how I can find out about this. Would they call CBF's central number? Would they go to our website? What's the best way, if somebody wants to volunteer with you come spring, summer, and fall, how would they do that?
1: I think the CBF website and looking at volunteer opportunities would be the way to go. Okay.
0: And at, oh. at, 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 at the worst, if they call our central number, they can also get to somebody who could tell them as
1: Absolutely. well? Absolutely. Everyone yeah. knows within the, the foundation knows the farm. You could call the farm directly. Uh, as well, but the the website would Good. offer a lot of opportunities uh, and more than just the farm, but Good. certainly a, a lot of the exciting opportunities at the farm.
0: Okay, so now let's, let's spring forward. It's been 30 years and without getting into every single detail you had started on it, the first job was repairing or restoring or re- regenerating the soil. But give us a sense of some of the things that are different on the farm today and uh, how you got there?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, first off, you have to picture the farm. It's a very hilly farm. Uh, more than many people would expect you would find in Upper Marlborough and Southern Maryland. We have 30% slope. So think about some of your better sledding hills. <laughs> that's what we've got. If, if we get snow, come on out to the farm. <laughs> we get some great sledding. It's great for sledding, but it's not so good for annual crops like corn and soybeans. Um, and that's what the farm had on it uh, traditionally for hundreds of years. So um, there were gullies on that farm you could not drive a tractor through. Gullies uh,
0: meaning where stormwater had washed away soil and dug deep gullies going so down. So
1: much so that, yes, we had uh, the first school groups we had out there. They would hide in these gullies completely from their teachers. Um, And it's amusing, but it really is appalling, too, because all that soil was ending up down in the Chesapeake. And
0: what's the uh, drainage into the Patuxent River?
1: Into the Patuxent, yes, exactly. Yeah, which is the largest river wholly within the state of Maryland. Um, So um, the first thing I did really was look at what are the ways that I can build the soil and protect the land from washing. Um, And I didn't just go ahead and do things. I talked to a lot of different farmers, um, extension, soil conservation, and it was clear that the best thing we could do there was to plant grasses and uh, mixtures for hay and pasture and put cattle on the land because the best way to build soil is to have perennial crops that cover it so it won't wash away and to have cows that can graze it. Um,
0: And help fertilize it.
1: The cows really uh, are wonderful. They do their own harvesting and their own spreading of manure. So um, it's one of the beauties of grazing.
0: Yeah. And we all all have heard a lot about um, manure being a pollutant of the Chesapeake Bay and the rivers and streams but that's when there's an excess of manure on too small an area of land and the crops can't utilize it. What you have come up with, I understand, is a balance of animal units to acreage and to the uh, vegetation on that land.
1: I think that was beautifully put and I (laughs) wish that was the way our policies were set up, that we looked at animal densities and how many animals on um, acreage can we manage well because um, that really is the key the as, you,
0: as well as fencing them out of the local stream or creek that may run through the property.
1: Absolutely sure you, you have to keep them out of streams and um, cows when it gets hot they're, they're just like the rest of us they want to be in the streams.
0: So um, what are they what happens to the stream and what happens to the animal yeah. when they are in the stream?
1: Well, you know, going up and down stream banks, particularly uh, in Southern Maryland, it, it erodes the soils and the banks terribly, and it, it just looks bad. I mean, I think anyone would look at some of these stream banks and say, that land is scarred. It's unhealthy. Um, and of course, you know, when you're standing in water, little kids will tell you they got to go. <laughs> and um, that's what happens. So, it, you know, it's a direct flushing directly into, you know, the Patuxent River in our case, and then down into the bay.
0: They um, also trample the biota in the stream. They destroy the the, the bottom habitat.
1: Yes, and then it, sometimes there'll be standing water that's not moving very quickly. There'll be a lot of bacteria, and that, of course, affects the cow's health. Because the cows are you know directly drinking from the stream. Um, Their udders will be dangling down in the stream and um, various problems you know bacterial problems with udders is a huge issue for animals. Yeah
0: I've even seen data from the Mastitis Foundation that will come down to a dollar amount per cow from being in the streams. And it's somewhere in the $180, $200 per cow in terms of veterinary bills that are alleviated if they're not in the streams.
1: Which is a huge savings to a farmer. If you can get them out of the stream, what you do need is an alternative source of water for the animals. And that's something that CBF and other environmental groups have pushed hard to help farmers get cost share funding. Um, Now, I think it's important to realize that cost share means the farmer does share some of the cost. Um, Maryland has one of the best programs where the state pays 87.5% of the cost. So if I want to get my cows out of the stream, the state will help me put in an alternative source of water. I'll only have to pay 12.5% of the cost the savings that you talk about, Will, through veterinary bills will quickly make that 12.5% a good investment for me as a farmer.
0: One other thing I've heard is that cows often will uh, bear their young in streams and when they're banks or for other reasons, high water, you'll lose a calf and that's what, a thousand dollars a pop or so.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, uh, losing a calf is a tremendous... Lost to a farmer because it's taken nine months for that cow, you know, through gestation. I have to feed and take care of that cow for that nine months. So a, a lost calf is a huge financial loss, but to every farmer that I know, it's a huge uh, personal loss too. You just feel terrible when you lose a calf.
0: Let's talk a little bit about something you've championed, and uh, there's even been a recent uh, grant Uh, that has helped us reach out. Uh, Talk about grazing. And there are a lot of different ways of grazing. There are ways that are better for the environment, ways that are not better for the animal, better for not. Tell us a little bit about grazing and what you've been working on.
1: Yes, I you know, grazing is really an interesting thing because so many people, you know, picture it's just a matter of fencing in a field and putting cows on it, and you're grazing. Um, I've been grazing now for over 30 years there on the farm, and I'm still learning. Um, it, it It's amazing how sophisticated grazing can be, Um In fact, we started CBF seven years ago, started a group called the Maryland Grazers Network, where farmers who love to graze get together. And what CBF has been able to do is we can pay a farmer who has a lot of experience to work with a farmer that's interested in becoming a grazer. Um, Every time these farmers get together, um, there are debates about, well, I'm doing New Zealand style. Well, that's no good. You should be doing the holistic high density. So there are so many different styles, but um, basically they revolve around a couple of themes. Um, The worst thing that we can do generally is to overgraze. And you'll recognize that if you're walking or, or driving along the roads, Um, say you're driving through the Shenandoahs, you'll see areas where the grass is just nibbled down to nothing. Um, This is particularly a problem on horse farms in Maryland. Um, So overgrazing is really a bad practice for water quality in the Bay. It's bad for the animals. It's bad for the quality of the land. So from a long-term perspective, it's not a financially um, viable way for a farmer to go. So the options are to let grass grow longer. And um, what has become the the major theme is rotational grazing. Now, rotational grazing means different things to different people. And you can quickly get into an argument when you talk about rotational grazing. Um, New Zealand style, which is the style that would be more or less what we do out at Claggett, allows the grass to grow anywhere from 12 to 16 inches high. And when I talk about grass and grass farmers, as we call ourselves, um, when we talk about grass, we mean clovers and pigweed and lamb's quarters and dandelion and orchard grass and Timothy, the whole uh, mixture of things. So it's not really just grass, but we would let it grow to be 12 to 16 inches high. Put cows in there, let them graze for one day, or at max two days, and then move them to another pasture. Um, we size our, we'd call them paddocks. So we'd break our pasture in a, in a number of paddocks. Uh, we'd size a paddock so that when they've grazed it for a day, it's now about four to six inches tall. Mm. And we're moving the cows, and then we're not going to let them graze that same piece again for probably up to 30 days Mm. once it's had an opportunity to regrow.
0: So you're really allowing them to, allowing the fields to regenerate. And the way you move the cattle is by using uh, electric fences, I guess, that are easily, or at least m- m- far more easily than uh, than wooden fences.
1: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it, really, the um, a single strand of polywire takes me, um, as long as it takes me to walk across a field, that's how long it takes me to put up that fence. It's, it's very easy. Uh, I can run it with a car battery if I want, and it's fine. A single strand will hold... The biggest, you know, uh, you know, two
0: thousand pound bull without any trouble. Um, now, so now I can hear people saying, "Well, sure, they're probably talking about three or four cows." you are you how many? Uh, our are herd you? is
1: ranges between fifty and seventy five.
0: So it's not, it's, so, it's, um, it's not de minimis.
1: <laughs> no, it isn't. And uh, the beauty of of this is after the cows have grazed a field from 16 inches down to four, the first thing they want is to get onto a fresh piece of grass. So moving the cows for me is pretty much opening the gate, which just unhooking the wire, this single strand, and getting out of the way uh, quickly. (laughs) And the cows will move right into the next one. I close the gate and they can't come back to the one they've been in. So Um, From a labor perspective, and we've done economic analyses with the university and our our grazing group, uh, labor is reduced dramatically when a farmer goes to a grazing operation if they have been doing a confinement dairy operation,
0: which is pretty traditional. I want to ask you about this recent grant, and then we'll wrap things up. But Mm -hmm. you you don't know this, I'll bet. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> three weeks ago, two and a half I guess, three weeks ago, I was out in the Shenandoah Valley uh-huh. and I was meeting with a ninth generation farm woman. Uh, her name is Jeannie Trimble Hoffman. Uh-huh. She is coming on our board of trustees and she showed me around some of the farms in Augusta County. And I can tell you we saw even though it's winter, so the, the, the grass is not thick and green, there were operations with obviously healthy pasture, and we saw operations in which there were cattle in pastures with not a single blade of grass and mud two or three or four inches deep uh, that the cattle were in, yeah. uh, all having to be fed uh, with, um, you know, with corn. Yeah. And all of that mud, when it was raining, which it was that day, was just washing down the hill and right into the creek.
1: And it was covering the, the udders of these poor cows. And it, as a n- farmer,
0: it breaks your heart to see cows standing in mud. Nothing good about it. And the questions were, why did they do it? And the answers were uh, not knowing better in some respects or simply trying to get more and more production, more and more revenue out of a smaller amount of land. And um, thinking, I suppose, that the cost of feeding him the extra grain uh, was worth it. But boy, it just looked awful. Yeah. Well, and
1: the economics have changed over the years. So that now what we're finding is that doesn't pay. The costs of the fertilizer, the pesticide, the diesel fuel to raise that silage to feed and to have the storage, um, then to have to grab all that manure with a bucket and carry it out to the fields ends up being considerably more expensive in terms of the purchased inputs, the labor time, the equipment, than uh, grazing and grazing well. So the economics are really favoring grazers it's a matter of getting that word out and then helping farmers make the transition. That Probably the singest bigg- biggest obstacle is that transition from confinement to a grazing operation because you've got to plant the pastures. You've got to give them time to get established. So there is a transition period which is trickier. And am I love. correct?
0: Is this exactly what this grant that you have received A hundred percent. Tell us about that.
1: Absolutely. We just um, CBF uh, has been the lead on this, but we've partnered, uh, which is I think the beauty of CBF. We're wonderful at at finding good uh, other groups to partner with and really strengthen what we can do in these partnerships. So we've gotten a half million dollars, and each of our partners and CBF are matching that half million dollars. So we really have in effect a million dollars. Who would be some of the partners? um, The partners include um, King's Agri-seed up in Pennsylvania. It includes uh, Red Barn up in Pennsylvania, Extension, um, the Forage and Grassland Council in Virginia, which is a wonderful group, Uh, the same in Maryland. Uh, the Maryland Grazers Network, which CBF has started. So um, farm groups and groups that are interested in helping farmers do a better job. So largely farm-oriented groups more than environmental, All right. where CBF would be the lead environmental group. Um, I think what's making this a progressive thing from a CBF perspective is, we're looking at a positive agricultural practice to solve an environmental problem. But it really is first and foremost a positive agricultural practice. It's, you know, economically viable. There's more and more interest. It's good for the land and the long-term value of a farmer's
0: land. And the uh, work under the grant is trying to Um, encourage others, to show them the benefits, to show them the economic data, the practices, how to get started, how to make the conversion?
1: Yes, it is all of that. It also will provide mentors. So if a farmer wants support, because I know for myself, you know, we've added sheep to the farm um, Mm -hmm. because you can add one sheep for every cow without increasing your acreage because they graze differently. It's been a wonderful economic uh, additive to the farm. I did it partly for the economics, but partly to demonstrate the beauty of multi-species grazing. But I've got a mentor through our Grazers Network that is helping me one-on-one. So when I was looking, uh, there are so many questions I have that I can go directly to one person and get the answers. So that's a key part because confidence in making these uh, changes is really key to success for farmers. Um, we're also uh, helping cover a lot of costs because there are many farm communities um, that do not want to accept government funding. Right. The, often yet, the plain sect farmers. Exactly. And, um, and yet um, still have the same costs and um, and so to help make these transitions, the grant will help pay for many of the costs that they would otherwise incur.
0: Well, that's terrific. And uh, it's certainly gotten a tremendous amount of publicity. I've seen articles, not just from around our region, but really all over the country about what the work you're doing in both the agricultural press and, and the, the lay press about this project. So well done. And um, we need to get it out there and get as much uh publicity as we can and as much people, as many people interested as we possibly can. Uh, so, Michael, as I say, this has gotten a lot of interest even beyond the Chesapeake Bay watershed, and I think I heard you may have gotten some interest from French people. Well, <laughs> Tell me but, I, what's going on here.
1: I did get a call from the French embassy asking me to come down to a meeting there, It turns out that the uh, Minister of Agriculture of France, which would be the equivalent of our Secretary of Agriculture, um, has started an initiative um, based on climate change and farming. And it's part of the uh, big meeting in Paris that was held recently. Um, And his initiative is to bring agriculture uh, into climate change discussion in a positive way. Research shows that agriculture is one of the bigger contributors to the problems of climate change, but it has the potential to be one of the most significant sectors in contributing to the solutions. Um, And he got in touch with me because he said, you know, I've heard CBF is really the regional leader in this area on grazing. We think grazing is one of the most positive things to build soil health and sequester carbon and have tremendous benefits for two things that they're focused on. One is food security, building soil quality, but the other is we can really, they're calling this four by 1,000 because agriculture, they're looking at sustainable ag being able to, uh, to sequester four thousandths of a percent of um, the carbon every year, which would be the equivalent of what is the increase in the carbon, this is getting, no, I, I lost it there. Uh, Let, so, let's just, sorry.
0: let's summarize. It, what it does is it helps address global climate change By Better Soil Health, Sequestering Carbon. And you can figure out all the details and put them on the website for our listeners to read later.
1: There you go. Or just go (laughs) to the French Embassy. They really have taken the lead in a wonderful way and would like CBF to be a partner with them.
0: So from Upper Marlboro to the French Embassy, (laughs) Michael Heller, the Claggett Farm, is uh, expanding its horizons. Yes, indeed. The one thing you mentioned that I just wanted to end with, um, you talked about work shares for vegetables, but you also run a community-supported agriculture program in which people can pay uh, a single fee on an annual basis and during the season get a certain amount of vegetables once a week?
1: Yes, that's correct. We call it community-supported agriculture, and it's like having a share in, in the farm operation. So we have 275 families who will pay in the spring, um, they'll pay about $650 this year, and then they'll come to the farm uh, once a week and get vegetables for 26 weeks of the growing season.
0: 26 weeks.
1: Yes. Um, so it's a wonderful um, connection between the community and the farm. Um, And it's great for CBF because we want people to be involved with the farm. We want them to understand what it is we're doing with the farm and what we see are the positives of agriculture in the Bay region.
0: So I think it's been great. Are you at capacity? Should we tell people how they can get involved if they want to or are you full up? we usually
1: have a waiting list of about 500 families, oh my so goodness. it's a very popular
0: But program. Google Google CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, because many other farmers around the country are doing this sort of thing, and so people should be able to find an alternative uh, if CBF isn't able to take more.
1: That's right. And, and on our CBF website, we have a wonderful location called Chesapeake Buy Fresh, Buy Local because um, we believe that if we can connect consumers with local food, it has positives for water quality in the Bay. And that website, at the CBF website, Buy Fresh, Buy Local, will list all the different CSAs that are available. Good.
0: Well, Michael Heller, Director, President, CEO, (laughs) top dog of the Claggett Farm in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. It's been a delight. Now, what have What have I failed to ask you that you'd like to answer?
1: Well, let me think.
0: Um, (laughs) Don't think too long. (laughs)
1: Here's the thing I would say. The one thing that I've learned over time is that soil quality is the answer to water quality. Hmm. We cannot solve our water quality problems associated with farms without addressing soil quality. And I think that's not a typical environmental perspective, but it's one that CBF has really embraced. And I think it is key and we need to get that message out.
0: Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this. It's been a lot of fun. Always great to have you in here. And you just got to give me an invitation at least once every once in a while to come (laughs) out to the farm because, of course, you never do. Well, you can help me when we're lambing. Uh, that's, what I, that's the time when I'm just a little bit too busy. <laughs> uh, this is Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Thank you for tuning in to Turning the Tide, Saving the Bay. And be sure to go on our website, cbf.org, to learn a lot more about all the things we're doing and certainly to uh, look into the Claggett Farm a little bit more and how you might be able to be involved. So thank you, Michael. My pleasure.